you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Everyone say, Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> it's been a little while since I've done that. Um, hey, welcome to Sierra Bible Church. If I haven't met you yet, uh, my name is Jesse, and uh, I get, for the most part, the opportunity to preach God's Word here and to walk us through Scripture. We are in Galatians this morning, so uh, turn to chapter 3. Uh, if you have your Bible, and if you don't have a Bible and you want to follow along with us, just raise your hand. One of the ushers would gladly love to hand you a Bible, uh, and um, and uh, I'll, I'll give a couple announcements while we do that. The first announcement is, is uh, yes, I have shaved off some of my facial hair. Um, some of you have noticed, and uh, so I don't hear a bunch of comments uh, after the service. I want to share with you why I'm missing some of my manhood. Um <clears throat> I promised my kids uh, they all wanted to dress for Halloween this year as Marvel characters, and I, uh, I had two options. I was given two options. So this is usually how things work in my family. Option one was uh, to be Thanos. Uh, option two was to be Fat Thor. Um, <laughs> I chose Thanos. <clears throat> and so um, uh, it'll, it, it, some of you don't even know who Thanos is, and... Um, and I would like to tell you, I'm not disappointed in that, but I am disappointed that you don't know who Thanos is, and you'll have to Google it and find out why the look works. So that's that. Uh, so one person asked me this morning, there's something different about you. And I said, I have new shoes. And they said, oh, yeah, that that's, makes sense. Um, so that's announcement number one, okay? Uh, announcement number two is if you are new, uh, whether it's your first week or you haven't done so and it's your second or third or fourth week, We'd love to get to know you and love to connect you to our church family. Uh, one of the things that we do to do that, as far as your first step, is to visit our info booth, and uh, we have a free gift for you. And then at the info booth, you have an opportunity to uh, sign up for our newsletter, which has all the events that are happening. It's fall, and we're entering into winter, and so there is a lot of things that are going on. There is a lot that we're trying to communicate to you on a regular basis. We just don't have time to share all of it from this particular stage. So uh, the newsletter, social media, that's the place where we put all that stuff out. Night of Bethlehem has already put signups out, so we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, but the big thing is if you're new, make sure you go visit, check things out uh, there. And then uh, Trunk or Treat is this week. So we're still looking for some more candy, and we're still looking for people who uh, are willing to sign up and decorate a car and park it in our parking lot, hand out candy to people who are here, uh, and, and just build community. And if you have never been to Trunk or Treat, it is now one of the largest events in Truckee as far as just attendance and, and, and how many people are here. Well over 1,000 people uh, attended last year. We're anticipating around the same kind of number, maybe some growth there this year. So we're looking for volunteers, looking for people to decorate cars, looking for people to love uh, on people. We've got a full carnival for kids, so they get candy, they get to play games, uh, they get to win prizes, we give out free food. It's just a big event for us, and it requires a lot of help. And so uh, one of the things I would say is if you have a car, any kind of car, just sign up at the info booth, bring it a little bit early, uh, decorate it to some degree uh, or another, and be willing to hand out candy. You can use a motorcycle. You, if you've got a motorhome you want to bring, uh, you can bring that. Someone brought, a, I think we had one or two sprinters last year that were decorated, uh, and so I want to encourage you to come and check that out. And then briefly I'll mention, ladies, you've got a bunco night coming up, so you know Girls, there's an opportunity for you to connect and fellowship and have fun. Uh, and then we're giving an early announcement for uh, Angel Tree sign-up. So if you're not familiar with Angel Tree, uh, Angel Tree is an opportunity for you to sign up for a family of a child whose parent is incarcerated. 
Uh, and so this is something I can relate to. My father was incarcerated through uh, most of my childhood. And uh, this is a chance to give a child whose parents can't afford it for whatever reason uh, and, and their parent is not around. And this has had a huge impact. In a few weeks, I'll read a letter to you uh, that Christine Manzel received from uh, a, parent, uh, a parent who was incarcerated. Just what an impact it made, uh, how, how it kind of rejuvenated their hope in humanity, and how it made that child's Christmas. Uh, and so signups are there for that, okay? So that's all of our announcements. Again, chances are you're going to forget this stuff, and I know that because you tell me every week, I never heard you announce that. And I'm like, yeah, I've been talking about it for two months straight, and uh, you forgot somehow because you're not really paying attention. Um, but <laughs> nobody likes commercials. Uh, so let's get into, into Galatians. You guys ready? Yeah. All right, awesome. So chapter 3, starting in verse 23, and we're going to read through chapter 4, verse 7. And we have uh, a kind of a tradition uh, if you're new here, that we like to follow, where we honor God's word by standing during the reading of Scripture. So if you would, if you're able to this morning, would you please stand with me as we read from chapter 3, verse 23. <clears throat> now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave though he is the owner of everything. But he is under, under guardians and managers until a date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Lord, again, we ask for you to continue to allow your living word to penetrate our hearts, to mold us into your image, to convict us of sin, to draw us into your grace, to shape us and mold us, mold us into, Lord, the image that you desire, and to increase the heart, Lord, of joy in us. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. So remember now the... The uh, backdrop of Galatians, Paul has been converted to the Christian faith. He has become uh, one, of, one of the top 10, really, in the world, most influential men ever in the entire world, history of the world. And he wrote this book because after he planted the church, uh, the church was planted with the understanding that individuals, men and women like you and I, were saved according to the promise of grace, that, that we were saved by Christ alone, through faith in Christ alone, so faith alone, through, I'm sorry, in Jesus alone, and through Scripture alone, the God of the Bible, that is to say the God of Scripture. And he planted the church with them understanding, you don't have to earn your salvation, whether you're Jew or Greek, you don't have to fight for it, you don't have to, to try to earn God's love, your righteousness, which is your right to standing before God, you don't have to try to earn those things. God has rather given them to you as a free promise. 
There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to keep it. Jesus has done all of it. And while he was gone and he moved on in other areas to plant other churches and to expand the kingdom of God, some Judaizers came in. That is, Jews who became Christians came in and started to teach that not only to be saved did you have to have faith in Jesus, but that grace alone wasn't sufficient. You also had to have the works in there as well. Specifically, the works of the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law, the ceremonial laws, that in order to be a true Christian, a true child of God, you had to not only believe in Jesus who died on the cross, you also had to do the works of the law. And they essentially just married the two doctrines together, grace alone and works alone, which is neither alone, but is blended between the two. Paul hears this, he's frustrated, and he's writing this letter. He states at one point, with large letters, he's passionate about what he's writing. He loves his church. He loves his people. He loves his church, and he's come to understand the doctrine of grace because he used to not be a man of the doctrine of grace. And so as he writes this letter, he's sharing with them, you are not saved by works. You are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. But he is arguing within this. He's saying the law does have a purpose. The law has a place. It has a position. In fact, in the text we just read, it uses this word uh, a tutor or guardian or masters. Uh, that, that is language that was used for children that were cared for by a guardian until the right time came. And what he says here, he says, the guardian's job is to teach the child that the child is enslaved to the works of the law. The child is a child. He's in control of the guardian. He's in control of the tutor. And the tutor's job is to con- convict the, the, the individual who does not know God that they need God. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, I'm sorry, not Sinclair Ferguson, uh, John Stott, who has, uh, Wayne uh, is reading it now. Have you finished it? Almost. Uh, I've, I've, uh, I'm about halfway through it myself. And uh, John Stott's got a wonderful book, and it's called The Cross. And it is just a beautiful book on just, just everything that is entailed on the cross, what Jesus has done, that the cross stands at the center of, of Christianity, yeah? That, that the Old Testament is used to point us to the fact that we need Jesus, and the New Testament tells us what has happened to Jesus and how our salvation, both from the old pointing to the, the new, uh, we are saved by faith, and from the new pointing back to the cross, we are saved by faith. And John Stott says this, he says, we cannot come to Christ to be justified. Now, whenever, whenever the church or whenever a pastor uses that word justified, it just means that you're in a right relationship with God that you're in a harmonious relationship with God, that you're connected with him. He's not angry with you. He's not frustrated with you. And you're not angry or frustrated with him. You are righteous and justified with him. You're in this right, correct, just relationship with God. And this is what he says. We can't come to Christ to be in a right relationship with God. We cannot come to Christ to be justified until we have first been to Moses who gave us the law. Until we've been to Moses to be what? He says, condemned. He then says this, but once we've gone to Moses and acknowledged our sin and our guilt and our condemnation, now before I finish, let me just say this. This is what the law does. The law shows you you are an imperfect human being. Okay, We we have been going through this week after week. Paul is hammering this home. The Bible hammers this home. The law has been set up to teach you that you can't earn God's love. So so we just go to two commandments, love God with all your heart, and then love your neighbor uh, as yourself. How are you doing, church? How'd you do? How'd you do getting here? <laughs> we watched this. We watched a video from uh, uh, Alistair Begg 
um, this, uh, this last week, and he was sharing uh, some of his frustrations from worship leaders. And he said he gets frustrated whenever he hears the worship leader open up the church service with, how are you feeling? And, and he says, because, he says, if you ask me how I'm feeling, I've gotten to church at 8.30 a.m. I'm kind of grumpy. It was hard to get here with my children. I kicked my dog, and I don't even have a dog. You know, he, he, he shares that, that, that this emotional state that we're in, that, that how we feel uh, is not the precursor to what God really has for us. It's our truth and our faith in God, not our emotions and how we're feeling. And so he says, he says uh, Stott says, we acknowledge our sin and guilt and condemnation because we recognize that, that even on a Sunday morning, getting here was an imperfect process. There's a good chance, especially if you have young children, you sinned on your way here. Okay? And now you're here. Now you're here, and now what you need is you don't need to be asked how you're feeling because you know how you're feeling. You're frustrated. You need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. So the first thing that you have to realize, though, is you have to go to Moses, and Moses says, here's the law. I'm not living up to the law. I'm imperfect. I'm broken. I'm shattered. I'm not in a relationship with God. But then he says, once you've gone to Moses, you're not to stay there. We then must let Moses send us to Christ. We must go back to the gospel. We must go back to what Jesus is, that he loves you in spite of your sin this morning in getting here, in spite of the way you sinned. Uh, on your process this week or in your life. He still loves you. He's still there for you. Now, he shares that this is a guardian in the child's life, that the law is like teaching a young child and directing the young child. But once that child uh, has been given faith, once that child now knows the faith part of the gospel, that you put your faith in Jesus alone, he's earned your salvation, you become a son. What, What Paul essentially is saying here, he's saying that Jesus has adopted you as a child of God And now as a child of God, you must grow into maturity. You've got to grow up. You've got to start acting your age, if you will. This idea of adulthood and what Paul is saying is really, really interesting. So in the American culture, in our culture, here's kind of just something for us to, to walk away with here, just understand. In the American culture, we do not have a distinct way of teaching when a child has moved from adolescence into adulthood. We do not have a process that is well-defined in our particular culture. In fact, it's even changed over the last probably decade or so. It is said that today, now, the new 25, uh, or the age 25, is the new 18. An analysis from San Diego State University said that young people are are doing less adult things uh, until a later age. So, for instance, um, some of you might consider this great news, and to a degree it is, uh, there is a large drop in alcohol use and sexual uh, encounters for young people. There's a considerably less likely uh, uh, chance that a child will drive at the age of 16, that they'll extend it to a later age. There's a less likely chance that children will have an after-school uh, job. They date later. The statistics show they go out less often, and we now know that, that, that young people are getting married far later in life and having kids at a much later age. The age has totally changed. The author of uh, the, the study from San Diego State University, uh, Jean Twinge, says, um, at San Diego State University, she says, our results show that it's probably not that today's teens are more virtuous or more lazy. So, so she's saying, listen, we've done this, 
it's through thousands of different young people in colleges, they, they realize, okay, there's less likely alcohol use in adult stuff like that. It, it's not because they're more Christian. It's not because they're more moralistic, she says. It's because it, they're just less likely to do adult things. And she says, in terms of adult behavior, 18-year-olds now look more like 15-year-olds of the past. And, and the, the article goes on to basically say that they think, in part, the surge of maturity uh, or lack of maturity <clears throat> is because of the use of adolescents and cell phones, and, and that is delaying uh, the ability for, for uh, young people to go through the psychological changes to move to adulthood. Now, now this conversation could go a lot longer here. There, there's a lot, <coughs> excuse me, to be said about this. I think most of you uh, probably would recognize and realize that young people tend to take longer now today to move towards adulthood than they used to. Uh, and, and, but this is different uh, today. It's unlike the rest of history or many other cultures. So for instance, the Jews, the Judaizers, part of these men who were inside of the church telling Paul how to live, they, they actually had a rite of passage for adults, for, for young children. And the way that it worked within Jewish tradition is that when a young 12-year-old boy would turn 12, uh, well, well, let me back up here. In the Jewish tradition, a child was under the father's absolute control until the age 12. So it was said in the Jewish tradition, I am your father. I, have, I, can, I tell you everything you need to know, when you need to know it, how to do it. I am your guardian, like the text is saying. I'm your schoolmaster. I'm in charge of you. And as it would say here, Scripture has enslaved us. This is the fatherhood that would say, you are enslaved to me until you're 12. Right? And you understand, if you are a parent, you know, especially if you're like me and you have children that are the age that I'm at, you live between two very real tensions, right? One tension is, you're so cute, stay the way you are forever. And the other one is, get your driver's license and go to college and leave. Okay? That is a real tension. And, and here in the Jewish tradition, they said, listen, we understand that we have an obligation until 12 years old at the age of 12, on the very first Sabbath, the boy's father and the son would pray this. The father would pray, blessed be thou, O God, who hath taken from me the responsibility of this boy. So listen, there's a part the father plays. I'm letting go. Then the boy would pray, my God, my God of my father, O my God and God of my father, on this solemn and sacred day in which marks my passage from boyhood to manhood, I humbly raise my eyes to thee and I declare with sincerity and truth, that henceforth, and I, I have the, unfortunately, I forgot to put the rest on here, in truth, that henceforth, and he says that I will take responsibility for all my actions and sins. So the, the young Jewish boy has this moment in his life where he stands before his father, and he also stands before God the Father and declares he is now responsible. He is moving into adulthood. Now, that was the Jewish tradition. At the same exact time, the, the Greek and Roman tradition was similar, but obviously took out the picture of God, or at least our God. In ancient Greece, a boy's father would be in control of the boy until he was 18. At that time, there would be a festival uh, which, which was called an aftatoria. It would, be held, it would be held in which the boy was declared an aphibos, which was a type of cadet who had then special responsibilities of his clan or his city or his state for a period of two years. So at 18, he was moved to adulthood, and then he was given specific responsibilities towards the state. During the coming-of-age ceremony, the boy would then cut his long hair 
that it would be cut off, that, and then it would, be, it would be literally offered to the god of Apollos. All again to declare at this moment of 18, I have civic responsibilities. I'm going to do certain things for country and for men and for society and community. Now, additionally, at the Roman ceremony, boys would take their toys or their Xboxes, Playstations, or Wiis, and at a similar at a similar at the similar ceremony, girls would take their dolls. So boys would actually take their toys, girls would take their dolls, their toys. They would offer them as a sacrifice to the gods as a symbol of putting their childhood behind them. So there were ceremonies there in, in these cultures that declared you put away, you put away certain things to become an adult. And Paul was specifically referring to this practice in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. When I was a child, I thought like a child, I spoke like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I came, became a man, I put away childish things. Are you with me? So now he's declaring, Paul's declaring here. What is he saying? Why do I say all this? Because Paul is telling us in this text, in regards to the tutor, to the guardian, in regards to us becoming an adult, he's saying, listen now, to live according to the law, to live according to trying to earn your salvation by works, to live according to traditions, is to live like an adult, but you're acting like a child. And he's saying to live in maturation is to live by faith. And the more mature you are, the more you live by saving faith and saving grace of Jesus, and the less mature you are, the more you're worried about all the little dotting the I's and crossing the T's. So Paul's encouragement for us this morning is that we would move beyond our childhood faith into a stronger faith in Jesus Christ. And what Paul says is if you live according to the law, look at verse 3 of chapter 4. If you're living according to the law, he says, in the same way, we also, when we were, notice the verbiage is past tense. When we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world the elementary principles of the world. Now, scholars have said that there's a couple things here. Uh, if, actually, if you look real quick before I go on, look at verse 8. Because in addition to uh, these elementary principles, it goes on in verse 8 of chapter 4 to define, and this is next week's message, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved. Notice the language again, enslavement. You were enslaved to those that were nature are not God's. So these elementary principles are seen as that which are not God's. And scholars have three, three kind of definitions for what these elementary principles are. What it is to live according to the law. What are these elementary principles to live like a child? What does that mean? There, there are three theories, three views. One is the view that, that what Paul is saying is when you live according to the law, you're living according to demonic forces. You're living according to, to that which is of Satan himself, to malign, to manipulate, and to change the truth of being saved by grace. Another theory, uh, which I don't have time to get all into, is that, that it's to live under the pagan system of astro- astri- <laughs> astrology, uh, which is the worship of idols and, and all of that, which again is in verses 8 through 11. Uh, the third theory is that it just refers to human religion in general. Human religion in general. I, I would argue that I think you could, you could argue all three of them. Human religion, I would argue, could be from not just human religion, not just the flesh, but the devil himself, along with demonic forces. And to worship idols, which we'll go into again, as I said last week, is pagan. It is demonic. It is 
evil. Paul is saying, listen now, if you live this way according to human religion, according to the law, you are living to elementary principles, you're living like a child, you're not growing up, and it's not healthy for your faith. Colossians 2.8, Paul says it like this. See to it, church, that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the, here's the word that Paul just used in Galatians, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Let me give you a, an example for us, okay? We, we come in every Sunday, and hopefully we have come with, with hearts uh, willing and ready to receive the Word of God, to receive Jesus himself, the spoken Word of Scripture that God would speak to us and we would be connected with him. And, and one of the things that we do as tradition at Sierra Bible, we just did it a minute ago, when we read Scripture, we stand. And that's a tradition that we have, okay? Now, now we would never teach, though, that that tradition makes the reading of God's Word more unique if you sit. And if you sit, I'm not offended, nor should your neighbor who's sitting next to you be. Because what I don't know is your heart when you stand, and I don't know your heart when you sit. If I say, everyone stand while we read, and three of you sit, the three of you who sit might have purer hearts than all those who stand. Are you with me? In the same way, the Bible, when it talks about prayer, people go, in which way should I position myself in prayer? And the Bible gives all kinds of different ways we pray. Pray on your knees. Pray with your hands raised. Pray while you're sitting. In some places in the Old Testament, it says, prostrate yourself in, on the ground. Lay your whole body on the ground. Put your face in the dirt and cry out to God. Now, does it matter how you pray? No, it matters that you pray with the right heart. Amen. And that's why when we talk about church and we say, okay, when you come to church, we don't care what you wear because you're not to be clothed with that outside that shows that you're pure. You're to be clothed that which is inside, which is the heart. I've seen broken, bruised, beat up people with a pure heart for Jesus than a guy who has shown up in a suit and a tie and he has it all together. And so what he's saying here, he's saying, listen now, we're not to allow anyone anyone to actually try to sway us with human philosophy that doesn't come from God or according to human tradition, but only that which comes from Jesus Christ. Amen? And so part of this is here, we recognize that the law has come in, and, and to live according to the law is to live like a child, and there are elementary principles that we don't want to live by because they possibly could be demonic. And then we recognize in verse 4 that the way that we become children of God, the way that we become, as the passage says here, adopted unto God is because of the sonship of Jesus Christ. The first thing that you have to recognize in order to move past the elementary child principle of the law is to move into the mature response of understanding that we are saved by Jesus alone because of what Jesus has done, the source of your adoption. Jesus is known as the Son of the Most High, Luke 1, 32. He is known as the child. In Psalms 2, 7, we are told that he is God's Son. And then in Hebrews 1, 5 through 6, it is defined what that firstborn of the Son is. Jesus is called the firstborn of creation. Everybody's thought, what does that mean? The firstborn of all creation. It means that as Jesus was born under the law, just as you and I were born under the law, and according to being born under the law, we weren't able to live according to the law, but Jesus lived according to the law. He did everything right. He did everything perfect. He was God's only begotten son, right? He is the child. He's the true child. He's the saving child. 
And because he lived perfectly, he was given the right through that perfect life, through the death on the cross, through the resurrection of the grave, Jesus was given the right by God the Father to adopt and bring in new children into the family of God who are no longer perfect. You understand? Now, I, I don't know if uh, you can relate to this, but we've got Russ and Michaela Grant. They, they've adopted three amazing kids. And you would know if someone told you uh, that they were adopted, no, you would know. And, and through their process, they've helped other people adopt. And there's nothing more beautiful than seeing somebody care for and love a child that's not their child like they are exactly their child. Um, for me, I had shared with you my, uh, my biological father was totally absent. And then my mom married another man, and he raised me. His, his name was Dave. And, uh, and, and I, I had him in my life as long as I could remember. My mom started dating him when I was two years old. And he, he raised me. He raised me the best that he could, taught me what it was to be a man, taught me how to, how to work on things, taught me all kinds of different lessons as best as he could. And then one, one day after I was 18 years old and I had left the house, and I was one of those guys at 18, I was like, I am out. I am out of here. I'm out of Truckee. I'm out of mom and dad's home. I'm out. And I moved, and I think it was only a few months while I was away, my mom called me and said, guess what? And I said, what? And she said, I'm pregnant. And I was like, what? That's a bad idea. <laughs> <clears throat> and, then, and then, obviously, nine months later, my, my oldest sister was born. There's 18 years difference between myself and my oldest sister. And then I got a phone call four years later. My mom said, guess what? I said, what? And she said, I'm pregnant. And I said, you're dumb. <clears throat> Then she had Lacey, which it worked out, right? Not so dumb. <laughs> and so I've got two sisters that, that I, could, I could technically be their father. That's the age difference. And, and I recognize that while my dad was alive, that he treated my sisters a certain way. He loved them. He, he pursued them. He would take them out to lunch. He would take them to breakfast. And it was so beautiful for me to see how he loved his legitimate children who were actually his DNA, and to contrast that with how he raised me. And there was no difference. None at all. He loved me the same way he loved my sisters. And, and what, what happens with Jesus is because of what Jesus has done, Jesus folds you into himself. He has adopted you into the family of God. And so God no longer sees you as someone who is not a child of God, but he sees you as a genuine child of God. And, and I, you need to know something of the gospel of Jesus. You are not, by biblical definition, naturally children of God. This is offensive. It is, but it's true. The Bible says that you are a child of Abraham. And Abraham, when he sinned, became a sinner. And through Abraham's sin entering into his bloodstream and now into all of his offspring's bloodstream, you and I, we don't have the ability before Christ to say that we are children of God. We're not. We're either children of Adam, or as Jesus would later say to the Pharisees, your father is the devil. And it isn't until Jesus comes along and says, as it says here and as it said earlier, that the seed of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham, which is the seed, which is Jesus Christ, the language there is sperma. That that sperma is 
placed within the heart of man once you believe upon Jesus in faith, and it changes your spiritual DNA, and you become a true adopted child of God. Such good, incredible news. So Jesus is the first son, so he can make more sons, and now we are children of God. And the way that we know this has happened is in verse 6. There's confirmation. What's the confirmation? Chapter 4, verse 6. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit. That is the, the, the seed of God. He, spent the, he sent the Spirit where? Into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Church, incredible good news. When you believe upon Jesus in faith, the Spirit of God goes into your heart. And that is the place, that is the time in which you become, as the Bible says, born again. Not of flesh, not of blood, but of the Spirit of God. You are renewed, you are washed clean, you are made a new person, you are made an actual child of God, so that when God the Father sees Jesus and he sees you, there's no distinction. Come on. This is why it's called the good news. Because you no longer have to be a part of the satanic family of the world. You no longer have to be enslaved to the world. You can be free. You can have a new family. Anybody want a new family? i got to be careful with that question, right? (laughs) This is the reality that you are not defined by how your parents raised you, for good or for bad. You're not defined by how your grandparents treated you, your aunts or your uncles or your traditions or your grandfathers. You are no longer enslaved to that heritage of sin. You are now free to walk in the new family of God to the degree that if anybody has has walked in the faith like I have and like my wife has, that this family and this room can feel more like family than actual DNA family. It can feel like, like nothing else you've ever experience. And, and can I just say, we have something so beautiful here, so unique, that, that there are many people who've said, I don't want to move, I don't want to leave Truckee, because I know this is my family, and I don't want to leave my family. You know how beautiful that is? That's when you have, have, as a church, understood the gospel, grasped the gospel, lived the gospel, and then God's word becomes alive that other people would see, yes, I want to be a part of this family too. And then we say, come and be adopted in faith. Jesus has done this. When he does it, again, the seed enters, the spirit enters, and the confirmation is our hearts cry out what? Abba, Father. Now remember, I mentioned in a few places here, tradition. The Jewish tradition in regards to how you communicated to God and how you used God's word was very tight and very defined. You are not to declare Yahweh just flippantly. In fact, you weren't even allowed to use the vowels of God's name when you were writing it. To use God's name in vain, to use God's name in a a loose manner is, is to possibly be under the wrath of God. You're not to do it. You're to protect it because God is seen as holy, high, mighty, unique, other than you. And then Jesus shows up. He's the first one. He's the first one to say, and he prays, he prays, Abba, Father. The, the, the language here, Abba, Father, is like calling somebody Daddy. And what he says here is, inside, we no longer go, we're, we're no longer confined to, to the constraint of having to use God's name as if he's distant. Rather, it's, you're, you're my dad. You're my daddy. 
I have this thing I do with my kids. My youngest is, uh, he's the funnest one to do it with. Yesterday I took uh, Jonah, our uh, seven-year-old, on a walk, <clears throat> about a three-and-a-half-mile walk. And he was a trooper, man. He handled it. And uh, we jogged a little bit of it, and, and, and we had a good time and a good conversation, just way to connect with my kid. And when I left for the walk, my three-year-old was, like, super, super angry. He, he wanted to go with us. I want to go on a walk, too. And, and I've learned, after taking several walks with our three-year-old, don't take him for long walks. We would not have made it three and a half miles. We would have made it 0.33 miles. And the reason is because he likes to look at the trees. He likes to smell the flowers. He likes to pick up sticks. I mean, it's just, he's so distracted. And then if he starts saying, come on, dude, let's go, he'll, he'll do this. No. And then you're like, ugh. And literally on one walk, I remember I had to pick him up for a half mile, and he cried the whole time in my arms, put me down, put me down. It's like, no, dude, this is, this is you are under my control. And <clears throat> so anyways, I promised him, I said, after I take Jonah for a walk, I'll come back, and we'll take a neighborhood walk. And I knew it would be less short. So I took Jonah for a walk, came home, took my little three-year-old David on a walk. And we're walking. And I do this thing with my kids as we're, we're walking or just doing anything else. And I'll, I'll say, guess what? Kind of like I'm, I'm getting ready to tell him something really important. And I do this habitually. It's something I do very often. I'm like, guess what? I go, David, guess what? And he goes, what? And we're just trucking along. And I go, I love you. And he goes, I love you too. And he still says it like he's cool. I don't know why my three-year-old thinks he's cool, but he, he does. <laughs> And uh, see, I do it with my three-year-old. He always responds. He, he knows. And, and, and there's still kind of a connection there. I do it with my, my oldest. <laughs> I go, Peyton, I love you. Or I'll say, Peyton, guess what? I go, yeah, yeah, I know. I love, you love me. That's what he says. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I know you love me. And so I'll start squeezing him. and I'll start kissing him. And then he's like, get off me. You know? And when we cry out with this, with this regard, there's, there's nothing more beautiful about when a, when a child does cry out, because this idea of crying out within our hearts, it shows us several different things. Number one, it shows us, it shows us that there's an emotional connection we have between us and God. And it's a, a unique kind of love. It shows us that we have a, a communication, prayer. We can pray to God. We can talk to God. And that God talks back. It shows us that he's present, that he's near. And you know this as a father, as a parent, that, that when a child cries out, you have to respond. Like there's this inevitable shriek that, that something happens inside the mind and in the heart where you can't just ignore it. I, I've never really been able to ignore very many of my children's cries, unless I've caused the tears. That's a different story. But if I don't know why they're crying, I feel an inevitable emergency response to find out why are you crying. And, and this shows us that God is always on the response to us. And it shows us the confidence that we should have in God because he's our father and he protects us. This is our promise. As true children of God, we cry out and we have a new kind of confidence a new kind of guarantee in God the Father. If your earthly father has failed you, your heavenly father has always fulfilled every promise you've ever needed, and he's accessible all the time. He's accessible to you. I remember the first time sitting down with a lady who came out of the Catholic Church, and she said to me, uh, after several weeks of participating in service, months probably, and she said, when we partake in communion, I want to partake, but she said, I don't know uh, who I confess my sins to. Because in the Catholic Church, before you participate in communion, you have to confess your sins to the priest. And so she's in my office, and she's like, I want 
to participate in the communion that you're taking. Communion stands for just being in communion with God, right? Like, I want to be in communion with him, but I have not been given the opportunity in this church. This is a frustration. I've not been given the opportunity in this church to confess my sins so that I may be in communion with my God. She says, who do I pray to? And I said, oh, I got such good news for you. I said, do you know that the Bible teaches that there's only one mediator, one person to confess your sins to between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. You can pray and ask for forgiveness to Jesus Christ anytime you want. And she stood up out of her seat and she said, you mean I can actually speak to God directly? And I said, yes. And she rejoiced and she took communion the following Sunday. This is the reality of being our, God being our Father. Now, when our heart cries out and we recognize that salvation is in grace alone, through Jesus alone, we're given a new identity. Jump back to chapter 3, verse 27. <clears throat> For as many as you were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. You've put on Christ. This is your new identity as a Christian. It has several implications. First of all, you have to understand that this put on Christ or unification with Christ is one of Paul's favorite ways to describe the identity of a Christian. So we like to say, and it's kind of a fun thing whenever they do these national surveys, you know, the evangelical Christian believes this and the evangelical Christian believes that. And you're like, oh man, we are all over the board. And that's because the evangelical Christian encompasses all kinds of actual faiths, from the Mormon faith to Jehovah's Witness faith, which, which we do not participate in that faith. We participate in a different kind of faith. So in actuality, the Bible describes us as Christians hardly at all, very rarely. The number one definition for the identity of Christians is you are in Christ. Everyone say, in Christ. This is when you were adopted as Jesus, you're made one with him. In fact, Jesus actually prayed it this way. He said, he said God, I would desire that they would be one with me as I am one with you, that, that we're all one particular family. We're unified with one another. Paul says in Romans 13, 12, cast the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Put this on. Put on Jesus. Ephesians 4, 24, put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Colossians 3.12, put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility. Paul loves to say, put on and you are unified with, you are one with Jesus. He just loves to communicate this new identity. You're clothed with Christ. This, this gives you, as I just stated, this gives you a new, complete identity. And this new identity shatters all kinds of barriers. Want to know how I know? Because Paul tells us. Go back to verse 28. After he says, put on Christ, look at what he says here in the language now. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male and female. For you're all one. You're all one in Christ. So, so listen now, if you classify these, there's three barriers that Jesus has utterly destroyed through the adoption of his children. Number one, there's neither Jew nor Greek. He has destroyed the cultural barrier. This is to say that one culture never needs to become like another culture in order to be saved. He destroys the cultural barrier. Number two, he destroys the class barrier. There's neither slave nor free. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter 
how poor you are. That barrier has been destroyed. And number three, it destroys the gender barrier. He says there's neither male nor female. In fact, Paul, in his day, is elevating women to the highest status that he possibly can. This, this is more pro, pro-woman than you could ever think or imagine in Paul's day. This is taboo. I mean, he is breaking apart the societal, Ju- Judaistic society that, that existed within th- these individuals. They would say to Paul, wait a minute here. No, we're Jews. We're God's promise from Abraham. They would say, no, no, we're free because of Abraham. And they would say, no, it is the male who, who carries the primary right of all things. And what Paul is saying here, he's saying, listen, all, all of us, no matter what culture you come from, you've got to let go of certain traditions because of the gospel. And you've got to stop thinking that if you're a man, you are better than women because you're not. And all the women say, hey, right? The gender barrier is destroyed, the class barrier is destroyed, the cultural barrier is destroyed, because in Christ we recognize after the tablets have come to us, we're all under condemnation. It doesn't matter how rich you are, you're a sinner. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, you're a sinner. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, you're a sinner. And all of us together are unified in the new family of God because we are all in need of the saving grace that Jesus provides. And we receive a new identity. I look forward to, I've said this before, I am looking forward to heaven when every culture, every, as the Bible says, every tribe, every tongue, every nation gathers together in heaven at the dinner table, the supper of the Lamb, rejoicing and worshiping God in unity. This is why it's important so you understand, do not put your cultural preferences above someone else's. That barrier has been destroyed. This this idea that we're clothed in Christ, not only does it give us a new identity, it gives us a picture of nearness. There is nothing we put on closer to us than our clothing. We're closer to God than you could ever think or imagine. It shows our acceptance to God. We're no longer clothed in sin or shame. We're clothed in the righteousness of God. And it encourages imitation. It encourages us to imitate God because we wear what God wears, which is righteousness. This is to put on Christ. Amen? So I want to end with a list. A list of, um, a list of things. This is not nearly comprehensive. But it just gives us an idea with Scripture of things. When we leave here, we say, okay, if I've put on Christ and I'm to imitate Christ, what kind of things should I imitate? Number one, you should shine as Jesus shined. In the same way, it says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father. Remember, this is about adoption. So you imitate, he's God the Father. You've been saved by grace, so now you should live in a particular way that shows that you have put on Jesus Christ. You've been saved in this way. You should shine in the darkness. That's why we do trunk or treat. We don't want to withdraw from the center or from the center. We want to engage the center. We want to meet them face to face. We want to hide in our house and and lock the door and hope nobody knocks on our door lest they think that we are celebrating Satan. No. We want to redeem the day and be involved in the community as Jesus was a friend of sinners. Do you remember what Jesus talked about? Talked about, they said, you know, John the Baptist came and he didn't eat and he didn't drink. And, And you called him a heretic. And then Jesus came eating and drinking, and you call them a blasphemer. It's like you can't win. 
So our heart has to be like Jesus, engage, engage, shine, shine. Number two, we pray. We pray to our Father. That's the other imitation. Jesus prayed, we pray. We trust. We trust and have faith in our Father because we know he's going to feed us and provide for us. We're more valuable than the sparrow, than the animal, he says. Number four, we're to make disciples in the name of Jesus. That is to make converts, people who don't know Jesus, to be followers of Jesus. Number five, we're to be merciful, kind people, compassionate people. And then number six, lastly, we're to not love the world. We're to love God. Jesus said through, or, or 1 John, or John says through Jesus that, that the love of the Father is not in us if we love the ways of the world. And that we're to not love the world, but to love Jesus himself. So I'm getting ready to close here. I'll just give you a couple closing thoughts and um, I, my wife makes fun of me because I know way more about pop culture than I, I should. That's what, she's something along those lines. Is that how you would put it, dear? Sweet, lovely bride of mine. Um, and I do, I, I know a lot about pop culture for whatever reason. And recently there's been all kinds of uh, news about a guy who apparently just got saved. His name's Kanye West. And I mean, I have gotten text messages, I've gotten phone calls, people asking me, what do you think about Kanye West? West. What do you think about Kanye West? You, some of you don't know who Kanye West is. Kanye West uh, initially uh, was a hip-hop artist, became a huge influencer in pop culture, and a huge influencer in, in, um, in style, shoes, things like that. And he married, another name you might have heard of, his wife is Kim Kardashian. And so he recently came out, and apparently it's been like a year. He's been wrestling through his faith. He's been wrestling through depression. He came out and he's, he's now saying that, that he's a follower of Jesus. And so initially, I'm always, whenever a superstar says they're, they've become a Christian, I'm always super skeptical. Like let, because the Bible says, let the fruit really show. I'm hearing all kinds of stuff. He's going to a good church. He's getting good theology. He's raw in his faith, but he's still learning and growing. And he, he just came out with a new album, and I'm sure it is just blowing up. I mean, everyone's talking about this. Kanye West is different. Kanye West is following Jesus. And the album, the album is titled Jesus is King. And I've listened to uh, some of his interview. I've, I've read some of the articles. And he's using language that sounds really um, pretty, pretty right on. And uh, one of the things he said in regards to this last point, don't love the world, love God. Kanye West said this. He said, because he, he is, whether you know this or not, he is a major influencer in culture. And he said, I used to think I was the God of culture. That's what he said. I used to think I was the God of culture. He said, what I realized was culture was my God. And, and now he's, he's stating that he's making Jesus his God. He's confessing sin. He, he's talking about his old life and wanting a new life. Now, now, all that to be said, when you look at someone like Kanye West, even if, he, even if it's not legitimate, it, it totally could be. I'm not here to judge that. That's, that's not my job. But what I, what I do think that the ultimate narrative states that he is stating that is true is no matter how high of a status you get within this world, no matter how much money you make, no matter how big your home is, no matter how many beautiful children <clears throat> you have, no matter how perfect things go, nothing will satisfy you like Jesus. And you'll always feel this hole in your heart until you put your faith in the one and only true God who earned your salvation for you so you don't have to feel unloved or unwanted anymore but you can feel totally accepted in the arms 
of your heavenly Father through Jesus Christ who's adopted you into a new family. Amen? As the team comes, on, comes up to worship, we'll give you your next steps. Um, my editor didn't count the fact that there's two number twos here, so. Uh, number one, I want you to explore. What, what do you feel like? What does it feel like to you to be an adopted child of God? Number two, what area in your life do you most struggle to remember that you're clothed with Christ, and what difference would it make to practice the presence of Christ in your life? And then number two again, repent. Repent is an opportunity for you to turn away from sin and run into the gracious hands of God. It's not a a hard practice. It's a fun practice in which you get to turn away from that which is unhealthy towards that which will make you whole. Where have you allowed barriers to rise with people different than you? And how does Galatians 3, 26 through 28 help you change that? Now, Now, all that is to say this. Jesus is in the business of saving people different than you. He loves to bring people into a community that don't belong into a community to make them part of that community. And I don't know if you know this or not. We, we don't have to wrestle with it quite like individuals do in the Bay Area. But, but one day, you and I, and I, I'm speaking from one Caucasian male to other Caucasian individuals here, that because that's most of you in this room, that, that there is very easily going to be a day where you are no longer the minority, whether you like that or not, whether you think it's politically okay or not, that is a discussion for some other place, some other time. But, but we are becoming uh, fewer and fewer, if you will. And so the question I would ask you is, as those individuals start to come into the United States, whether for right or wrong reasons, whatever they may be, are you going to be willing to give away some of your culture to their culture that the church will continue to grow and save people? And it's not here quite as much. The Bay Area, they're dealing with it. I mean, I've talked to pastors there and uh, church attenders there, and they're, I think in San Jose alone, I had a guy tell me, uh, they're in their neighborhood now, they were 90% Caucasian, now they're 20-something percent Caucasian. And that the neighborhood is now mostly Indian and Asian. Here's the deal. I don't know why they're here. I don't care why they're here. I just know if they're here and they're in my sphere of influence, I'm going to share the gospel of Jesus with them. And I'm going to hope that God brings them to the kingdom. And whoever those individuals may be, I would hope that our church would look like the people of Truckee. And for the most part, Truckee's filled with a lot of, you know, weird white people. And I can say that because I'm white. <laughs> and, uh, and for the most part, that's what our church looks like. But as that changes, and we've talked about the Hispanic community, things like that, uh, we want to continue to see God expand our borders and to treat all people for exactly what they are. Do you know what they are? Made in the image of God. And they're in need of saving grace as much as anybody else. Let's pray. Lord, um, we thank you for the message that you brought from heaven to your son, down through the Virgin Mary, through the life that Jesus lived, to the death that you experienced on the cross, to your power-defeating resurrection from the grave, down to men like Peter and now to Paul, to the Galatians and now to Sierra Bible Church the message that we are not saved by what we do, but we are saved by what you have done. May you cement that into our hearts, Lord, that we would become the most gracious people that this culture or this community has ever known, that as they see our good works, they would declare the goodness of our Father in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, will you stand with us and uh, may this song be uh, resonating in your heart that as we sing hallelujah, Jesus, it's an exclamation.